0: Welcome, movie fans. Thank you for joining us for this special Star Wars Podcast Day episode of Reading Between the Reels. If you're a new listener, we're so glad you found us. And if you've been enjoying the show, please tell someone about us, post on X or Facebook, write a review on your favorite podcast catcher, or just recommend the show to a friend. Today on the show, we're giving you a taste of what we do on our show by going back into the archives for one of our early deconstructions. In this episode, we revisit Coruscant Community College. Breakdown Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. I'm Craig Dickinson.
1: And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we'll continue our series of in-depth examinations of the Star Wars films with a deconstruction of Episode 2, Attack of the Clones.
0: So as we did with The Phantom Menace, we're going to be sharing our general thoughts on this film and its place in the larger Star Wars canon while we break it down by focusing on the aspects we covered in Season 1. So we're going to just go ahead and and kick off with cinematography. Matt, what did you notice about the cinematography of Attack of the Clones that you found interesting? So
1: the first thing that really jumped out to me was in the first, I don't know, third of the film, there's this really interesting neon color palette that comes in Mm -hmm. with Coruscant that we don't really see, I don't think, in any other Star Wars film. Uh, And it really reminds me of Blade Runner. Like a cyberpunk-esque, like there's ads everywhere. I think if you took some of the wider shots from kind of Zam's speeder chase, you could probably insert that into a Blade Runner film and probably not even notice Um, other than some of the things where you obviously some of the Star Wars aliens. And so I just think that's really interesting. And it's a side of Star Wars and the universe that we've never really seen before this movie. And we don't really see afterward. And I think that's one of like the biggest strengths of Star Wars is that the universe is so big. There's so many things that you can fit into the world. And I just found it really interesting. I had never thought about it before, but it was that kind of not, uh, neon cyberpunk color palette, the lights and everything. And I just thought it was really interesting.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I, I had that on my list too, just that that was something that was very unique. It stood out to me. Uh, I couldn't quite tell what I, what I was supposed to get from that other than, I mean, it was, some of it was like in the lower, you know, underbelly of that. We saw the kind of the neon. So I don't know if that's a commentary about, about what that is, but that does make sense with the Blade Runner thing too, that like, that this is not necessarily the best part of town to be in, you know, like like the city in Blade Runner.
1: That's actually what I was going to bring up is I actually do really think that it is a commentary of a class stratification Mm -hmm. because cyberpunk as a genre tends to be kind of the hardboiled detective things are not clean they're dirty both morally and like physically and you just get that vibe and i think that lucas is trying to draw or kind of juxtapose you know we see palpatine's office earlier in the film and we see the the high gleaming skyscrapers on the top and then you see this really seedy underbelly of coruscant uh, underneath and I, I do kind of wish that we had more stories exploring that aspect.
0: Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, it does kind of touch on that. We do kind of have the uh, the detective story thing, which kind of goes with the, with the PI thing from from Blade Runner. So that's kind of cool. You know, contrasting that, I did look. The only th- other color thing for me that, that stood out is that we have the the clone troopers all in white, which are clearly you know supposed to be precursors of the stormtroopers. And we you know we've talked about in previous episodes where. You know the stormtroopers when you first see them. Hey, they're in white, so they must be the good guys, right? That's you know how I'm supposed to view them, and then it turns out they're actually not. But in this case, at least initially, the clone troopers are the good guys, and so I wonder, you know, if for someone to have watched this movie before A New Hope, will go, well, yeah, the white guys, those are you know the guys in white uniforms, those are the good guys. That that would be even more jarring to see that. But just a couple other things I noticed cinematography wise. I always really enjoy uh, the shot of Anakin on the cliff above the sand people and the way he's up, looks like he's up in the stars. And, you know, I talked about Paul F. McDonald's book, The Star Wars Heresies, last week. And there's another great illustration from his book, which I'm, I'm going to steal. Um, well, we're teachers, so we beg, borrow, and steal. Is that it's very evocative of kind of Lucifer falling from heaven. It's like the beginning of his descent into darkness that you know, there's virtually no sound that goes with that. It's pure visual. But I think that's a really striking one. And then the other, the other thing from that too is I always find it interesting that when we get to the Battle of Geonosis, that we have uh, the clone troopers attacking from the right and the droids from the left, which is inverted from Empire. And typically, you have, you know, the good guys are on the left and the bad guys are on the right. That's just kind of the way that works cinematically most of the time. You know, it's interesting that we're Again, things are a little bit off in this movie. We're, we're supposed to be um, feeling like it's kind of supposed to be jarring, much like, you know, with camera work. We have the camera pans up for the first time. You know, when I show kids these movies, this is usually the fourth movie they've seen. And so I'm like, okay, guys, what's the camera going to do? And they're like, it's going to pan down. It's going to pan down. And then what's it going to do? It's going to pan. Oh, wait, it panned up. You know, things are, things are opposite. Things are backwards here. So did you have anything else from cinematography or should we move on to sound? The only
1: other thing that I I noticed is I was trying really hard and watching Palpatine and look for maybe little clues and stuff. And the only thing that really popped out to me as far as a possible foreshadow or foreshadowing of, you know, like what's going to happen next is that uh, his entire office is all red. He's also got Mm. the Senate guards, you know, behind him and that's a little costume stuff, but it's like. I just noticed that, and obviously the color red is very indicative of
0: the Sith. Right, <laughs> it's right up there, right <laughs> out there for us to see. So, yeah, yeah, that is interesting. So, yeah, moving on to sound, you know the, and it's you know, some of this is recency bias, but you know the seismic charges is mm. was has always really been one of my one of my favorite effects, and you know because it starts with silence. And then it has that great wow sound as it rips through the rocks. And it's just a really cool sound playing around with a sound. And we we had not heard that type of thing in Star Wars before. And I just, I love the the speeder chase, the Doppler effect and the different speeders just weaving in and out uh, of traffic and Coruscant. I think that's just amazing.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think the speeder chase, uh, Zam's speeder in particular, is just phenomenal uh, sound effect design. And Star Wars has always been really good at sound effects. I mean, from the very beginning uh, from A New Hope, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, seismic charges because that effect where they use silence and then noise, Mm -hmm. it also comes back up in Last Jedi. Yep. Uh, But also in uh, The Two Towers, when Helm's Deep is breached, the wall is breached. Uh, the explosives. Peter Jackson, the director, mentions that they use a little bit of silence to enhance the noise afterward and make it sound louder, without actually increasing the volume, like in the theater. So, uh, just a very interesting effect that kind of shows up in some other movies as
0: well. Yeah, that's cool. I love the soundtrack for this movie. Um, I had that's probably the thing I had the most notes on of of all the things this time through. I noticed a, a couple of just. Light motif is like the main thing that I have kids look for, and so that's the main thing I'm listening for. I don't think it's anywhere else in the film, but I just noticed, and I had never heard it before. Now that there's a small bit of Anakin's theme from Phantom Menace when he and Padme first meet, when she calls him she calls him Annie, and and like you know, you're still the little boy I knew when tattooing and all that stuff. Yeah, and you know, John Williams just hammers that home by like, "Yep, here's this little kid theme," uh, which is kind of fun. Of course, we you know we have to talk about Across the Stars. I mean, that's the the big sweeping romantic theme from this film. Uh something that that I love about that is the Mickey Mouse scene that happens on the lake. And you know, it's it turns out it's this, you know, romantic scene and then she breaks away and the music cuts out at that mm. exact minute uh at that moment and you know, kids get a kick out of it. Like I get laughs so frequently when I show that in class. It it's timed so perfectly. So that's that's just great. Did you have anything for for soundtrack? Is that had a few other things. But. Um yeah, I mean Across the
1: Stars is w- was highlighted for me. I think every movie has one track that stands out as kind of the signature track. And Duel of Fates in episode 1, Across the Stars in episode 2, and you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about the others as we go. Yeah. I really tried to pay close attention to when Across the Stars played, just kind of focusing on Cause obviously it's the relationship I and mean, it's the leitmotif for the relationship between Anakin and Padme. And so I like tried to kind of tune in whenever I heard that and pay attention to what was happening. And I guess, I, I don't know if I want to talk about it right now, cause it's tied to performance as well. And I might just save my discussion of, um, okay. the performance for then. And then I'll, I'll I think I'll come back and kind of reference across the stars a little bit.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that because I, I have something else about that, but I think I could save it for that too. Yeah. Um, I did note, again, we talked about this in the last episode that Duel of Fates is is kind of the thing that progresses all, th- way, all the way through the prequel movies. And then you have it again uh, in this film, you know, as Anakin's looking for his mother. And it, we have that same kind of tension, right? Of, you know, what's he going to do? And is he going to make the right choice? And of course, ultimately he does not. And so, you know, his fate, it's kind of like his fate is being decided piece by piece throughout the films. So I thought that was a really interesting use of that theme. And just a couple last things. Again, I mentioned it in the last episode. Again, we have the Federation theme shows up in this film uh, when when Obi Wan's overlooking the clone troopers, and the parallels between that and yeah, that, the Federation. That's a good one. <laughs> you know, it's like we're it's the same theme song for both sides of the of the Clone <laughs> War. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, it's uh, almost it, a
1: little on the like on the nose. Yeah, <laughs> because it's like it's kind of obvious. But I don't think the kids pick up on it every time, you know, unless you kind of mention it and point it out.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I didn't. I, I yeah. just like, oh, that's a cool song. I like that, and it's militaristic. And <laughs> but like the deeper meaning of that. I is, guess I should
1: say that it's not obvious until you hear it, and then you can never not unhear. Like, <laughs> it, yeah. you notice it every time once you notice it f- the first time.
0: Yeah. Uh, then the last thing I had just for music was just the fact that there's diegetic music in Dex's diner. And, you know, that's the thing we try to train kids to, to listen for the difference between those two and like, oh, hey, there's music playing here. And this would be music that Obi-Wan could hear as he walked through the door. And that's kind of a cool phenomenon. Uh, the last bit I had for this just was that we have some interesting vocal sounds. A couple places I had for the dream sequence where Anakin's hearing his mom. That's kind of a cool... Uh, and that, that's the thing that's changed uh, depending on which version of Attack of Clones you're watching. And then Yoda hearing Qui-Gon's voice. That's not quite dialogue, so I put it there. And it's a thing that kind of slips under the radar. I don't think a lot of people have, have noticed that or talked about the fact that you know, Qui-Gon Jinn is in this is in this film, even, albeit briefly. Okay, so performance. Now is the time. What, what was the... Do you want <laughs> to talk... <laughs> Should we yeah, jump there? I'll,
1: I'll start off with it. Yeah. You know, so I guess... I want to reference episode one just briefly because I had some difficulties buying the relationship between Anakin and Padme Mm -hmm. and like what it was. And we talk about the sliding scale of acting as far as whether actors are static. Are they under emoting? Are they dramatic? Are they hitting their beats or are they melodramatic? Are they over emoting? And I felt like everyone was like all over the place except for (laughs) Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan was perfect in this movie. And so I do want to start out with that because I think this movie, we see Ewan McGregor who plays Obi-Wan. I mean, I think he's cementing, because like when I imagine Obi-Wan, I imagine Ewan McGregor. (laughs) And um, I think that's partially because I've seen so much of him also in Clone Wars. You know, my mental image of him is that. But Obi-Wan is just that perfect. And I wrote down that he had this smug look about him. I don't think smug is the quite the right word. I think he's just self-assured. Yeah. And I think he's so self-assured and he feels like a mentor. Just in everything that he does and the way he talks and the way he moves. And I love his performance. I, I think he's by far the best actor in this entire movie. Anakin is all over the board. <laughs> <laughs> he is static. He's dramatic. He's melodramatic. Padme is all over the board. And, and that's kind of us thinking with across the stars is that motif is supposed to symbolize the building relationship, right. Between Anakin Padme. Mm-hmm. And I don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> like Anakin must be an amazing kisser. Cause the first time he kisses her and they're off to the races. But before that, like all he does is whine and complain and, and murder people. And it's just like, <laughs> There's moments where I think it works, like right before they ride into the Coliseum on Geonosis. Yep. Like, I think that's totally fine. I don't think that it's earned earlier in the story. Because like when Anakin is in Padme's apartment and he's complaining about Obi-Wan, consistently Padme shoots him down. I mean, from mm-hmm. the very beginning of the film, and, and this is kind of bleeding into the dialogue and, and body language, facial expressions a little bit. There's just this coldness that she has towards him where when she's saying, like, Annie, my goodness, how you've grown. You'll always be that little boy on Tatooine. Like, that's totally shutting the door on him. I mean, when Anakin's complaining about Obi-Wan, she shuts the door on him again. The one that really got me is when Anakin is staring at Padme, and she goes, stop looking at me like that. It's making me uncomfortable. And he doesn't. <laughs> and it's like, I can't imagine a real woman being like, wow, that... that that's so attractive. He won't listen to me and stares at me creepily. Like, right. <laughs> it just doesn't, the buildup doesn't work for me. I think the payoff of, you know, towards the end, and I think it gets better when Padme races off to go save Obi-Wan and Anakin follows her. Follows her. I mm-hmm. think that makes sense. I think that tracks. I think that works. But the beginning of the relationship doesn't feel right to me.
0: No, I hear you. You know, to playing devil's advocate because and this isn't mine I've heard this from, from multiple things so I think Brian young is probably the the one I've heard it from most is is that we can look at this as as if these these two kids have zero social experience <laughs> you know that that Anakin's basically training to be a monk and and she's you know she's been in the legislative youth program since she's 12 so both of their social skills are totally off um and then you know the other thing that this just sparked in my mind. Um, we talked last episode about how, you know, the Jedi were not supposed to be looked at as Lucas did not intend them to be. Hey, these are the moral authority. They're supposed to, this is Jedi in their prime. They're awesome. They're infallible. We're not supposed to look at this relationship and go, yeah, that seems healthy. You know, it's not. It's not supposed to be healthy. It's not a good example of the way that you should do things. And then, you know, that doesn't necessarily go into performance necessarily, but there's a little bit of that there. And then, you know, it reminds me of, when we do get to that scene, uh, when we show it in class, where she confesses her love to him, it's kind of like, okay, that seemed a little out of left field. What do you guys <laughs> think? Does that is that because they're about to die? And she even kind of mentions that? You know, is this is this legitimate? Is this genuine? Would it have been that way had it not gotten to this point? You know, where they're literally going to die in the next few minutes. Would she would she eventually have come to that point? And so. You know, those are interesting questions to ask. I I don't know the answers necessarily, but I think they're really good discussion points.
1: I, I hear what you're saying, and I think those are those. I think those are really valid points. I don't know if the text supports those. I think those are inferences that you could draw. At least, I guess what I would say is I would buy that. You know, Padme does does not have a normal childhood. Obviously, Anakin doesn't either. But it, that feels like there should be like this almost playful awkwardness. And that doesn't come through where they're like, how do real relationships work? And it's like, (laughs) yeah, so I I see what you're saying. I I don't know. I don't think it works for me. I don't think there's enough there. Cause like, and I don't want this to become uh, the Clone Wars apologetics or whatever, but you know, I think the Clone Wars, and obviously there's way more time to explore this kind of relationship. Does a little bit better job of showing that possessiveness and how unhealthy that relationship is where this movie i don't feel like it shows the unhealthiness especially because it gets kind of rewarded at the end too yeah like if we're talking about theme you know if this was your introduction to how courtship works you might get the wrong idea <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I, and i think i've told you this before that one of the years that i showed this film that most of the girls cheered at the end they were like yay they're getting married and it's like that's really it's not a good thing you hear across the stars there at the end but it's yeah. not played in a happy way you know and this is this is another thing I'll just I'll throw this out and then move on is that I've heard recently and and uh, that there's this concept called DSRA right it's there's a theme song for death and this has been around forever and it's it's latin and it means the day of wrath. It's not a good thing. It's a song. It's it's music for death. And that little motif is in across the stars. Like you're meant to think subconsciously, this is not going to end well, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, before we move off of performance, was there anything else that you you noticed? I had a few things. I mean, I I always like to point to Anakin's facial expressions when his mom dies as like an example of that Hayden Christensen can act. Mm-hmm. You know, some of this we talk about, like, maybe this is direction. It's what the script says. But he says so much just with his face in that scene, and it ranges. The music helps with that, too. Um, but I think even without the music, it works that you can see kind of what's going on in his head. You see the the realization and then the determination about what he's going to do next. Um, but I just had uh, just a lot of great dialogue in this film. I know as much as people are like, well, the prequels don't have dialogue. I'm like, if you look for it, I mean, pretty much everything Sheev says is awesome. <laughs> the things about I love democracy and that whole speech is is so so great and just dripping with you know he he sounds sincere but you know he's he's not
1: I also had palpatine written down as just his whole performance overall is amazing I should say because you know I, I talked about how Obi-Wan kind of feels like the number 1 but Palpatine's right there with him everything he does feels dripping in sarcasm and double meaning and that's fantastic
0: yeah I agree and I decided to throw in the, I, I love the line where, you know, why do I get the feeling you're going to be the death of me? I love that foreshadowing. That's, that's fun. Cause, and again, for kids, you know, it's a literary device too. So we get to go, Hey, look, this is supposed to be kind of a nudge to the audience. Hint, hint. This is where this is going. Uh, and so that's fun to pick out. One other thing that I, cause there's a couple lines and stuff that I, I wrote
1: down when Mace Windu very early on says Count Dooku was once a Jedi. He couldn't assassinate anyone. It's not in his character or in his nature. Jocasta knew. the librarian, says, if an item does not exist in our records, it, it does not exist. And then also when Obi-Wan and Anakin are in the bar and they cut off Zam's arm and then Anakin goes, Jedi business, go back to your drinks. I think all of that is actually doing a pretty good job of setting up the Jedi as, as not what they should be. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've talked about briefly before, like, this is the Jedi at their height, at their pinnacle, but they're not, something's wrong. Something's rotten in the state of Denmark, as far as the Jedi temple is concerned. And, you know, I was just thinking, like, if I was a patron at that bar and saw these Jedi just cut off some random person's arm and then be like, go back to your drinks, I'd be like, who are you? (laughs) Like, did she actually commit a crime? Like, what's going on? That's not right. Where's her justice? Yeah. And then just the arrogance of Mace Windu and Jocasta Nu, where it's like, we already know everything. And I think it that actually, there's a lot of good work as far as building up the arrogance of the Jedi.
0: Agreed. So I just had a few last things with um, costumes, hair, and makeup. Um, it's interesting that she's still using the Handmaidens, and there's that one kind of almost like a nod to the first film. I think mm-hmm. at the beginning, where it's you just see the from her, from the back, and it, you think it's Padme, but of course it's not, because she's much more feminine in this in this film. Like most most of her clothes are are very you know girly and and they're pretty and elegant, but not anonymous anymore. So she kind of comes into her own. This is probably her best film, the one she gets to do the most in. Also, noticing things like that, Anakin's wearing fully dark clothing. I've read in other places where you know basically. Padawans are, are typically, they kind of emulate what their masters do. They kind of wear the same type of things. And I kind of contrasted that with with Obi-Wan, where Obi-Wan has, you know, he's got the beard and the long hair in this film where he's not quite Qui-Gon-esque, but he's leaning toward that way. So he's kind of adopted that type of thing. But Anakin's going to do his own thing. He's going to be very independent. And of course, the, you know, as he's progressing, you know, it's it's much like when we get to Luke too, you know, Luke's wearing light, you know, almost white colored then then gray and then black. And Anakin does a similar thing in these films where now he's in his middle phase and so he's wearing not quite black, but it's dark browns. And then, of course, you know, Django's armor is definitely a thing that is, I wouldn't say exploited, but its you're going to have it everywhere. its They're going to show, you know, every little thing that, that his armor can do. It's very much on display in this film and it's kind of also like a hint of like, hey, here's the stuff that Boba Fett would have done if we would have shown that. You know, it's very much the same thing. And now we know you know, that that is, in fact, the same armor. So that's kind of a cool, That's not just a nod to that. It is, in fact, you know, that, that's the same stuff that he would have done. Yeah. So how about uh, setting and design? What's the dot to A um, couple things. Camino is the planet that sticks out to me the most in this film. It's, it's so unique, you know, being all water and the awas, the, float, you know, the flying whales that come out. It's some real striking images in that, you know, I've done some research on this, and, you know, water is associated with birth. And so it's, you know, it's, not, it's not an accident. Like, none of these things are accidental. You know, Lucas is a genius when it comes to bringing in ancient motifs and themes. And, and so you know, the clones come from a planet that symbolizes birth. That totally makes sense. But is there, I mean, other than Naboo, is there a, like an actual physical location that's not a green screen in this film? It seems like we're moving more and more towards... I mean, they go to Tatooine, so I guess there's that too. But it seems like we're doing more and more green screen. Geonosis is green screen. Coruscant, obviously green screen.
1: I can't think of one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but the thing that really sticks out to me most in this is that, and I, I guess I've kind of come to terms with it, but Dex's diner is fully a, 50s, a 1950s American diner. <laughs> that's true. It's yeah. dropped into Coruscant. And it was a little jarring, it took me a little bit out of the film first time I saw it. And I know that that's, I mean, Lucas has also done you know American graffiti. And so there's that too. That it could be a little bit of a nod to himself. You know, people got to eat. So here's a place where they eat and who knows where, you know, maybe this is the origin of the 1950s diner because it's <laughs> such a long time ago. But I thought that that's the most uh, striking thing for set decoration for me.
1: Uh, I think for me, like, there were two, really, two things that stood out. And one of them I've, I've already touched on with the cyberpunk Blade Runner feeling of Coruscant. Uh, but the other one is the Jedi Temple and and it just feels ostentatious it feels over the top it feels almost like cathedral like and again it goes back to what i was saying earlier about how this movie is really in my opinion setting up the topple of the jedi order like it's it's really showing off that the jedi order have lost their way i mean these are supposed to be kind of humble servants and protectors and uh, I think in the last episode you mentioned how Qui Gon and Obi Wan wear these simple robes because it's you know what the poor denizens of the galaxy would wear, and so it's like you see these people watching or walking around the Jedi Temple in these poor person robes, but they're in this giant cathedral <laughs> with statues and everything. Right. And so to me, it's a juxtaposition of of this wealth and power and prestige next to this outward-facing humbleness and, and power that they don't have because uh, Mace and Yoda talk about how they can no longer see with the Force. And so the Jedi Temple is projecting this false image to the galaxy around them, and it's kind of hollow.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I, I, I 100% agree with that. So characters from this film... Uh, that stood out to me. Count Dooku is—I mean, he's the—he's the new big bad in this. I've always liked that his name is Count because he's played Dracula multiple <laughs> times. That's fun, and then it starts with the D, so it's kind of reminiscent of that. I know I, I've heard conflicting things on this. I think Chris Riley himself, though, has said that uh, Dooku is actually from Doku, the Japanese word for poison, hmm. which is really cool. It'd be uh, cool, that's, nod, yeah. Yeah, it's a cool nod to that. You know, some people are like it sounds stupid. I'm like, yeah, but if there's a hidden meaning, that means that. I mean, there's a bunch you of know? weird names in Star Wars that has never yeah. stood out to me as like <laughs> that weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's very true. Um, you know, it's interesting that he's he's Darth Tyrannis as well, but that's only used one time in the film. And you know, I've heard I've heard this com- complaint. You know, that it was in the marketing, we knew he was the bad guy. It's it's a thing where you kind of you wish that that could have been preserved. And I, I do try and not let kids know right away like he's he's the sith lord and just see if they, if there's actual a reveal there you know for me there never was i was just like yeah he's the bad guy and also he's christopher lee who's played bad guys so many times yeah. and you know he was playing saruman at the same time and so uh, you're like yeah he's he's the bad guy he's christopher lee come on <laughs> but yeah i mean we talked a little bit about uh anakin as a young adult you know he's obviously differently recast for this one as they jumped the film 10 years which we didn't talk about yet Um, But that was, you know, interesting choice. I was glad to see that. And it's like, yeah, I want to see Anakin doing stuff. And we talked a little bit about last episode, whether or not, you know, what that would have been like to have basically started with Anakin as a teenager. Would we have identified with him more and enjoyed that more? And, you know, that's, it's a choice that just, they went another way. So this one, I think for a lot of people, they're like, yes, this is the Anakin that I wanted, or this is the type of character that I wanted. But I just wanted to point out, you know, I ended the last episode that he's kind of the end justify the means guy. We saw that already. Where, the, well, Qui told me to stay here. And and so, yeah, I'm in the ship and he probably didn't want me to go into space, but I'm technically doing what I'm supposed to do. And he does that again here with the encouraged to love speech to try and justify, yeah, I can totally go after, you know, go after Padme here as long as I do as this mental gymnastics of <laughs> Yeah, which I would define okay, <laughs> as unconditional love. Like, well, you would define it that way. Would Yoda define it that way? You know, get the, we talked about Jango Fett already. You know, that's one of the, you know, he's the, he shows up on the poster because obviously, you know, he's supposed to be important. And great character. And Tamara Morrison's awesome. And we still get him, you know, showing up in Mandalorian. So that's great that he's still still doing that. It's I like that they dropped Bail Organa in this. He's barely in it. But I still think he has some kind of crucial things. And it, it's very much where you're seeding that for the next film. Like, he's in here just so that when he shows up in episode three, you're not like, who's that dude? And then I just want to talk about, you know, briefly Yoda, that he's digital for the first time, and we get to see Yoda be, you know, which is great. They kept that out of the trailer, at least the initial trailers, that he was going to have a lightsaber fight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's still one of the funnest things for me to watch uh, in all of Star Wars, just to watch him just go off. And it's, you know, it's it's actually not very long. It feels longer, but just to watch him in that fight with Count Dooku... Did you have anything for characters other than that? The only thing I think I would add, and you
1: already kind of touched on it, is that Padme feels a lot more fleshed out as a character in this movie. I think she's got a lot more agency. Like she decides she's going to go after Obi-Wan. And I think she kind of grows into that role as the movie progresses. I think, unfortunately, she does take a little bit of a backseat in episode three compared to in episode two. So I, I do think like what you said earlier, Episode two is kind of Padme's episode where she kind of shows who she is. I I think that kind of shines through.
0: Yeah, no, I I would agree. So for the galaxy, uh, there's not a whole lot of new force stuff in this one. We see a lot more telekinesis is used quite a bit in this film. You know, Anakin's kind of doing it flippantly to impress Padme. Yeah. You have a little bit, I've seen the future, probably chronologically. This is the first time, although they did mention that in Phantom Menace now that I think about it that, you know, he can see the future. That's why he appears to have such quick reflexes. You see that again here, but then it's the whole possible future thing, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but younglings are the first thing that we see kind of with the, with the Jedi Order that we, we've we never really seen toddlers. And we see Yoda, uh, you know, teaching younglings. And, you know, that makes, it makes sense for us, those of us that looked at that and went, you know, Obi-Wan said that he was trained by Yoda, but we saw him trained, trained by Qui-Gon. Well, how does that work? How does that how do you justify those and reconcile those? And well, you know, everybody's trained by Yoda, right? So that kind of you get a little bit more of a Jedi culture that way too.
1: Uh, only thing that I would add, I think, is the changeling, Zam. Yep. That yep. doesn't change. <laughs> 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 Just, uh, it's such a wasted opportunity. I. It's one thing that didn't work for me as far as kind of the new stuff that was introduced. Such an interesting concept. You know, if you're if you're making a narrative to have a character who can change shape, appearance, whatever, and I just didn't feel like that was really utilized.
0: Yeah, especially like as an assassin. Yeah, you know, she sends off some bugs, <laughs> which again, that's a new thing that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, uh, but you know, she could have become a handmaiden or a you know Obi Wan or Anakin and sneak in there and
1: yes, exactly.
0: And you, you know, it's funny you you do see that. You know, we keep talking about Clone Wars. <laughs> it's like, this is like the first draft and then Clone Wars, they get to it. Cause in Clone Wars, they do that, yeah. right? There's an episode and I can't remember off the top of my head what it's called, where there's a, a Claudite, a changeling that, that gets in there and it's, you know, it's an assassin. So. Yeah.
1: Well, even Obi-Wan changes, even though he's not a changeling. I mean, there's, do you remember that episode? Right. Right. When he goes undercover? Yeah. And so it's yeah. like, there's obvious, like very interesting narrative things they could be doing with it. So
0: yeah. Uh, the last bit I wanted to talk about this, and that's – I know because I want to talk about it when we get to Revenge of the Sith as well, is the, the Jedi starships in this one because we, we have two models. We have one in the next film as well. But in this one, they're they're triangle-shaped, which uh, one of the cool things that I remember hearing about that this, this design is that it's actually kind of a scaled-down Star Destroyer. That's mm-hmm. where it started from. Um, and so it's interesting that you have the Jedi using what will ultimately become Imperial uh, hardware – So that's kind of cool. And then we get to see the hyperspace ring, which we'd never seen before too. And that's just kind of a cool effect. Oh yeah. So I think hero's journey is next. Yeah. Did you want to talk about that, Craig? Yeah. So I'm always looking for those connections in this one. And I think, you know, the last film had a lot clearer version of the hero's journey, but I think, and I don't want to just say like, Hey, I can find it so I can, I can kind of make it fit, you know, round, round peg square hole, but you do have, you have a new mentor, uh, in Obi Wan, who's now, you know, we like to I like to joke with the kids and say, you know, old the mentor is the old guy with a beard, because typically that's the way it is. You know, Gandalf and Dumbledore and Obi Wan in the original trilogy, it's all the same kind of physical appearance. But you know, he does you now he has a beard. <laughs> but you have you have the death of of Anakin's first mentor in this, his mother. You know, and that sets him off. He has to kind of uh, how's how's he going to evolve independently from that? You know, he doesn't go the way he's supposed to go obviously. Uh, and then this road of trials thing where he's, he's supposed to choose the path of the Jedi, but he's trying to decide whether or not he's going to do that or pursue Padme. But in, he wants to have both. And that's really the biggest thing with him is that he can't let go of things. He has to have it all, including stopping people from dying. And again, we have this whole pattern of him you know, choosing that the ends do justify the means. And so that he's, I want it, if I try hard enough, I can have it and I can have everything. I can be the, you know, the most powerful Jedi ever. And it doesn't really matter how I get there. And then I had just you know, the fact that he can't let go. And then ultimately, literally, he has to let go because he loses his hand. I thought that was really kind of an interesting symbolism of, of, no, you have to let go because you didn't let go. Like, I'm going to force you to. Uh, and that's what I had for Hero's Journey.
1: So I was going to uh, kind of wrap up with uh, closing thoughts and just your overall thoughts of the film and, and, and where episode two falls in the Star Wars canon. And yeah, so just final closing
0: thoughts. So you know, for me, the things that, that stick out, I guess three things that I have that, that stick out is that we have that Anakin, Anakin leaving Naboo to go save his mom is very much a rhyme for Luke leaving Dagobah to try and save his friends. That we're meant to, we're meant to see that. You know, it's the second film in the trilogy and it's, it's, it happens roughly the same time in the film. The fact that I remember mentioning he loses his hand, he loses the same hand, uh, loses that right hand in a duel with the Sith Lord, just like Luke does in Empire. I remember seeing that where I saw that first was like in the DK book before the movie had came out. And I was like, oh man, I got spoiled on that. But I guess I probably should have known because it was going to rhyme anyway. Obi-Wan chops off the arm in the bar. We talked about that too. And that kind of rhymes with, you know, a new hope, his first appearance that we, you know, cinematically we saw. And just the fact that Tag of the Clones structurally is inverted to Empire Strikes Back and the fact that it starts with, it starts slow and ends with the big battle. And Empire starts with big battle and then ends slow with like a, a personal battle. That's kind of an interesting thing. There's also some symbolism there where we have the Naboo cruiser coming in at the beginning flanked by two N1 starfighters and then at the end we have of of Empire, we have the Millennium Falcon flanked by two TIE fighters. And so symbolism and through the clouds and all those things too. What about you? What'd you think? My first thoughts are that um, I actually think like plot-wise,
1: structure-wise, I think episode two, I think starts off more interesting because you, you have the obvious attempt at Padme's life. And like the first, roughly third of the film is very much just like a detective story, <laughs> you know, where it's like a, mystery, And so I I tried to approach it this time like the story was a mystery. And to me, like when you're watching a mystery movie, you tend to have like, you know, a few clues, a few threads that your characters follow. And the more they pull on that thread, the more and more things kind of become unraveled and you see the larger connections. And, And for me, I think that the beginning sets up this really interesting mystery of like, okay, why are they trying to kill Padme? Like what's going on? And, you know, we find out that Padme's assassin turns out to be Django is working with the cloners on Kamino uh, and it's hidden in the archives. So there's this like mystery of like, okay, who, who erased it from the archives? Because no one's supposed to be able to do that. And then the the Kaminoans expect Obi-Wan, which is this really unusual uh, turn. And you find out Master Sifo-Dyas ordered the army, but then Django doesn't know Master Sifo-Dyas. He knows Tyrannus. And I think you mentioned that, it as like the only time they mentioned Tyrannus
0: uh, in the whole movie, like one time. Yeah. And at the end, too, there's the. Steve calls him that, too. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah, so there the, is, there's twice. There's two, but that, that's probably the most important one. Right.
1: And so I think, <laughs> as far as like a mystery movie, it kind of loses the thread about that point and it stops becoming a mystery for me. And, it, and it, it, it almost feels like the movie is trying to shift from that mystery and, oh, no, Obi-Wan stumbled on something much bigger than just an assassination plot. I think it does that, but I think it's kind of a clunky transition where I felt like, you know, imagine if instead of Master Sifo-Dyas or Tyranus, imagine if it was Sidious who had ordered the clones. Then it's like, oh, you, you, you kind of see the connections, I feel like, a little more clearly, I always feel a little confused about who's trying to kill Padme and, and why. And I think it's because the it's it's the Nemoidians, right, from the Trade yeah. Federation. And it's right. just for revenge. Am I wrong?
0: No, I think that's it. That that's there is no larger larger plot there. That like she foiled them in, in Phantom Menace and now they want they want revenge for that.
1: And to me, that feels a little
0: unsatisfying
1: because it I think at the beginning they make it out where they're talking about the the opposition party, the Military Creation Act, I always find it kind of funny where they they leave Jar Jar in charge of representing Naboo. And they basically right. just trick him, but it's not even like really a trick. They're just like, hey, Jar Jar, initiate the authoritarian regime that we're trying to, to build. And Jar Jar's <laughs> <Yeah>. like, okay. <laughs>
0: it's like, if only Senator Amidala was here to do this. I mean, hop oh, on a hey, Zoom. That-
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so like, there's there's like little things like that, and like, you know, because I was trying to approach this movie watching it like with fresh eyes, as fresh of eyes as I could. I'm asking myself, are they trying to kill her to stop the vote? Because that's that's definitely what they're uh, leaning into at the beginning. Yeah, but it's not. It's just just a little revenge thing. I just feel like we don't even really see. The Trade Federation, I can never say that name, the nemoidian leaders, they're not really part of the movie, you know, until the very end. But even then, they're not really part of it. Yeah. And so it just feels a little disconnected from beginning to end. And I think overall, I like episode two more than episode one, but I, I still feel like there's these connections that aren't quite making it.
0: So I'm going to counterpoint a little bit yeah. on, on your... Neomodian plot to kill Padme. I think that what we've seen, I think there's ample evidence to say that the Neomodians are pawns of Sidious repeatedly. And so I do think that, you know, you said, I don't know if it's about stopping the Military Creation Act. I think it is. I think that that Dooku and Sidious kind of have plausible deniability here because they can say, look, it's the Neomodians who are trying to kill Padme. They just want to get rid of her because of what happened on Nebu, and the blockade and all that stuff. But really, they need to get her out of there because, well, there's two things. Like, They need to get her out of there because they want to have the Military Creation Act go through without her vocal opposition to that. But the big thing, of course, is they want to get, you know, well, Sheev's got plans within plans, right? So the other thing is, I just like saying Sheev, <laughs> is, you know, he needs to have that her life threatened so that he can pair her up with Anakin, because that's part of his plan is to get Anakin separated from Obi-Wan and to continue to groom him. You know, that's another, we didn't talk about that too much in this uh, episode so far, but just the way that he, you know, just inflates Anakin's ego. It's like, you don't need guidance. I see you becoming the greatest of all Jedi. He's just flattering him continually. And, you know, he's the one that suggests, how about Master Kenobi? How about we bring him back so he can help with Padme? And, oh, yeah, no, she needs to be protected. And then we should put him on his own thing because there's this other thing that showed up. So Obi-Wan should go over there. And, you know, he, I feel like he's very much manipulating that situation to put them together just to get to weaken Anakin's ties to the Jedi Order. So, and there's a lot going on. I mean, these are whole shows unto themselves. You know, you can argue about whether or not it's tied together nicely. I think the pieces are there. Whether or not, you know, they fit in a logical logical manner is a whole other thing. No, I see what you're saying. And I and I do I do think that there
1: is a logic to it. I think they are tied together. For me, it's not tied enough. It's not tied tightly enough. And I, I feel like this is something where, you know, in the script and sometimes authors do this where they'll combine two characters who can serve like two different purposes within a film, narratively speaking. Mm-hmm and i just you know i kind of wonder if if that couldn't have happened and maybe combining a little bit of some of the different roles you know christopher lee's awesome and count dugu is an interesting character but like i i also kind of wonder it's like okay do you do you absolutely need him as the facilitator of creating the clone army i don't know if you do and the other thing with that is like do we ever find out why the separatists are trying to leave the
0: Republic? It's not super clear in the film. I mean, think with, there's stuff in the in supplemental material. There's stuff in, in the deleted scenes of Revenge of the Sith. But ultimately, I think it comes from the ending in Clone Wars, too, that it comes from, you know, feeling that Palpatine, again, he's been in power already longer than he's supposed to. And that you're seeing regulation that you hadn't seen before and that the system that these people believed in is is become is disappearing. Yeah. And so it's kind of this this disaffection with with the republic and the way that it's being handled with the senate and the corruption in the senate which we've already known has been around for for decades at this point. And so I think it's just kind of a natural progression from we're tired of seeing our government act this way. And that's I guess that's like where I'm coming from where
1: like what if Duku were more of a Sa guerrera type where he is this kind of resistance leader who's fed, up, you know, and, and, and lean into that story a little bit more and just make those ties a
0: little clear for the, yeah. for the viewer. Yeah. It would have been cool to see a little bit more. I mean, that'd be a great novel actually yeah. to see him come come to power uh, as the head of the, of, you know, of the, of the separatists or, you know, that's, it's a term we don't hear often. I remember hearing it in like the original Star Wars Battlefront, like, Not like for PS2, the Confederacy of Independent Systems is is the other term. um, To see kind of how he rallies people, and obviously he's very charismatic, but we don't really get to see that progression. We just hear about it, right? This is an example of show not tell, and we they just told us he's the head of the confeder of the separatists. And that's where it's like
1: it's also hinted at that the Trade Federation will join the Confederacy of Independent Systems if Mm -hmm. they assassinate Padme right that's kind of their condition sure and it's like that right there is another i mean that would be such a great way to add nuance of hey these are resistance fighters just like the you know the rebellion and they're just you know they're fighting tyranny they're fighting palpatine yep. oh but they're also hiring assassins like and so it's like there's there's so much there that i feel isn't quite brought to the surface and for me brings the movie down a little bit because it's not Reaching for those things, I feel like are right there. These are lots of subplots. That yeah,
0: I see, and I see where you're, I see where you're coming from. But I'm like, how long do you want this movie to be? It's, <laughs> it's over two hours already.
1: See, and see, that's where you gotta you gotta combine characters. You gotta you, and that's where it's like you gotta tighten it up in yeah. other areas in order to make room for that. Cut out all the awkward love scenes and make them a couple already. <laughs> and just, I mean. <laughs> I don't know. I Yeah. No you can, I hear you, you can spitball all day about the movie you would make. You know, this is just something for me, this was one of the weaker parts of it where I yeah. can see so much under the surface that I want to explore. Like tell me and show me why the the Trade Federation and all these other systems want to leave. Like show me how corrupt it is. That, right. that sounds really interesting. And it doesn't quite go there.
0: So I think that's it. Yeah. I think, I think we've covered it. If you're listening to this and you have thoughts about Attack of the Clones, we'd love to hear them. If we missed something that's one of your favorite things, please let us know. If you disagree with either of us, please let us know. We'd love to have you join in the discussion. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on X and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website, If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast catcher. Our regular episodes drop every other Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the fun.